Well, hey, you guys, welcome to the Connection Point Parent Podcast, and we're back again with Dr. Zach Breitenbach and Trey Shigley, our Worldview Directors at Connection Point, and this is a resource to take you deeper into where your student has already gone. So this is the third lesson on the reliability of the Bible. Uh, Eighth graders have been going through this, so we'll jump right in. Uh, Zach, um, as we continue this series for eighth graders, on Bible reliability, this week's topic takes on the question, does the Bible have errors or contradictions? Looks like the students took home another good packet of notes this week. So as we get started, could you just talk a little bit about why you give them a whole packet of notes and what you're hoping they'll do with it? Yeah, sure. Uh, we do give them a, a little thicker packet of notes than what they're accustomed to when they usually uh, come to, to church on Sunday. Um, and that's because we're just hoping that uh, we can take them a little deeper in these worldview series and give them a good resource that they can have uh, to remember all the stuff we're teaching them. We're hoping this is really helping them to ground them in their faith, what they believe and why they believe it. Um, and, and another big thing that I'd like to emphasize to, to parents here is we're hoping that you will ask your student uh, if, if you can talk through the, the notes packet. Um, we don't want to uh, really push this uh, too much on students, and we let them take notes or not take notes, but um, it, we'd love for you to just encourage them to have a conversation with you and to, to go through that packet and, uh, and just talk through the things that you're hearing summarized in, in this podcast. That sounds great. Uh, Trey, you started out by laying some groundwork for this lesson. You talked about the importance of considering genre and context when reading the Bible. So tell me about that. Yeah, understanding the genre and context is very important because if you don't have a good grasp of it, then you're going to be reading your Bible incorrectly and drawing all sorts of incorrect conclusions from it. So when we say genre, that just means the type of literature that it is because the Bible isn't just one book. Uh, it's a collection of books, and within that collection, uh, there are different types of genre. Um, things like poetry or biography or uh, things like history. And so when you are understanding uh, the genre, then you can uh, better understand, uh, get to the point, which is what did the author originally intend? And the context helps you with that as well. So the context is just understanding what comes before the verse I'm reading, what comes after, what what is the setting, who is this written to, what time was this written. Hmm. Um, and a good study Bible can help you with that, a little bit of Googling can help you with that, but when you understand the context of it, it helps you put things um, into place. And so we gave in the, the notes packet, we actually gave the students different kind of examples of different types of genres. So things like parables or biographies or poetry or uh, a metaphor, um, similes, different different things that uh, the Bible has in it. We gave them little examples from Scripture. And because the last thing we want students to do or anyone when reading their Bible is to read a verse talking about, you know, the trees will clap their hands with joy and think, <laughs> oh, the trees are actually going to start clapping their hands. Like, well, no, that that's, you know, that's kind of the poetic imagery talking about there's going to be lots of rejoicing and and so understanding the genre really helps you uh, do that. And one thing we pointed out is that um, just because something is not literal doesn't mean it's not true. Hmm. And so when Jesus says things like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the true vine, or I am the lamb of God, he's not saying he literally is a vine. It's a metaphor, but 
what he's saying is true, is that if we aren't connected to him, we will not bear fruit. And so when we're reading the Bible, we're not discounting it by saying, oh, some things are metaphorical. If things are metaphorical in the Bible, they're still true. It doesn't have to be um, literal in order to be true. So next he highlighted five mistakes that people sometimes make that lead them to think that the Bible has errors or contradictions. Uh, Zach, you want to talk us through what are those mistakes that people make? Yeah, I'll, I'll summarize those for you. And the first one we talked about is very related to what Trey was just saying about context. A lot of times when someone thinks there's an error in the Bible, that's because they're ignoring the context of a passage. So we gave them an example of this. Uh, For example, in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about if someone sins against you, you should go and address that with them. Um, And then if they don't listen, you bring, you know, others from the church. And so Jesus is talking about, well, sometimes you you judge that someone has sinned against you. Certainly Jesus made judgments against the Pharisees. He would call them hypocrites, uh, brood of vipers. Um, So you see Jesus making uh, judgments, but then say you take another passage like Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Mm. And so someone will say, well, that's just a contradiction. One place Jesus is saying you got to judge sin, he's mm. making judgments, and another is like saying, do not judge, or you'll be judged. So we had students kind of look through the whole context of Matthew 7, 1 to 5, and see that, well, Jesus isn't saying never make any judgment about sin. He's talking about hypocritical judgments. Mm. Um, so that's an important point. A, a second mistake that people make Uh, that leads them to think sometimes there's errors in the Bible is they think just because something hasn't been proven yet uh, means that it's false or it can never be explained. Uh, Good example, right? There's this Sargon II. He was a a king of Assyria that's mentioned in the Bible. And for a long time, people thought, well, this guy never existed because we've never found any record that talks about him outside the Bible. We uh, have never found any archaeological evidence Mm. of this guy. Mm. Well, then eventually they they find his palace, Uh, which is in modern-day northern Iraq. And they've discovered so much about Sargon II that we now know more about him than any other king of Assyria. And there's other examples like that from the Bible. So we shouldn't think that just because we haven't found something uh, yet in archaeology that it's not true. A third mistake people make is thinking that just because there's a partial report of something one place in the Bible and and a different partial report in a different place in the Bible, that those uh, contradict, right? And an example here would be the inscription on the cr- cross that went above Jesus' head that said he was the king of the Jews. If you read the four Gospels, they all four have a different description of what was on his head, but all of them were just part of the full thing. And so we talked about uh, very likely what was on that inscription is this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And if that's what was on the inscription, then all four gospel writers are giving a part of that and just leaving off certain words, uh, and it's all very consistent. So we shouldn't think that just because one place in the Bible they're giving a partial report of something and another one's focusing on a different part of that, that those are necessarily in conflict. Hmm. Um, And a third mistake people make uh, is thinking that just because some event is described differently in two parts of the Bible— that there's, there's, there's a big mistake here or a contradiction. And, and we talked about Judas uh, dying and how he died, kind of a classic example that often people think is a, is a mistake or error in the Bible. Because in the book of Matthew, it says Judas went and hanged himself. Uh, and in Acts, it said that he fell 
flat on his face, and, and this is kind of gross, but he, he burst open in the middle and all of his guts came out, mm. right? Yeah. So yeah, that is gross. The middle schoolers just love talking about yeah. that part, <laughs> uh, as you might imagine. But um, those two things we talked about, I asked them, uh, sit at your table, think about how those two things could fit together, and they, they figured it out for themselves. It, it's very uh, reasonable to think that he could have hanged himself, and yet... Uh, perhaps as his body uh, went through uh, the decay process, a little bit of bloating, a little, uh, he, he, he fell, he was cut down, the mm-hmm. rope broke, and, and he would have been uh, such that he would burst open. Because usually people don't burst open uh, when they fall, right? So something had to be going on there, and, and knowing that he, he hanged himself actually helps you uh, explain that. Hmm. So we kind of talk through that one. Um, and then a final mistake people often make is thinking that the Bible approves of everything it reports. And that's just not the case. You know, like, for example, King Solomon had 700 wives, and the Bible talks about this. And someone might say, well, that doesn't sound morally good at all. Uh, and it's not. And the Bible doesn't approve of that. And we talked about um, uh, passages in the Bible where we know that. Even in uh, 1 Kings 11, where it says he had 700 wives, it says, well, they turned his heart away from God. And Deuteronomy says you shouldn't take multiple wives. And Genesis says, you know, the man and his wife become one flesh. And So uh, we shouldn't think that just because something's reported or described that the Bible thinks that's a good thing. Hmm. So those are, those are five mistakes. That's, that's really helpful. Um, why don't you keep going, Zach? Next, you talked about how there are sometimes differences in the way the four Gospels describe the same event. It could be hard to see how these different versions of the event fit together. You discussed how the genre of the Gospels helps us to see how these differences are not really errors. So you can can you kind of unpack all of that yeah, for us? There's yeah. a lot there. There are times in the Bible where the same event is described in different places, like the Judas death thing, and, and you can see how the both could be true, and you can harmonize them. You can show how they fit together. But honestly, like when you compare the four Gospels, because they describe uh, many of the same events, there are times when it's just pretty hard to see that there's a legitimate harmony there. But that doesn't mean it's an error. Um, And so we talked about how the Gospels, what their genre is, they are Greco-Roman biographies. And of course, a biography is is telling about the life of another person, in this case, Jesus. Uh, The four Gospels talk about who he is and what he did uh, and give give, uh, some some key points of his life. Um, And a Greco-Roman biography is different than a modern biography in certain ways. They have different conventions, different rules, you might say, for Mm -hmm. how they do things and what's considered acceptable. Just like poetry as a genre has certain rules for what's acceptable when you're writing poetry, Mm -hmm. which is different from another genre, like maybe a police report, which is just very straightforward and factual. So if if the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies, which it's widely accepted, that's their genre, that's what they are, their, their biographies written in the first, second century, they were written in the first, but Greco-Roman biographies coming from the first and second century follow a very similar format. And we looked at a couple of, of sort of uh, aspects of Greco-Roman biographies. Like one example is, is time compression. When you look at Greco-Roman biographies like uh, Plutarch or Suetonius, um, you see that they will often do this. They will, they will leave out details when they tell a story, and they'll compress things together uh, just to make it shorter. And this wasn't considered an error. So, like, when you look at, uh, for example, Jesus cursing the fig tree, which is described in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, uh, Mark gives a more extended version of it. 
he talks about how he cursed the fig tree on the way to Jerusalem on a Monday morning. And then they came back uh, the same way that night. And then they came back the next morning and then they saw that the, the fig tree had withered after Jesus had cursed it the previous morning. Whereas Matthew describes it more as, as withering uh, immediately. And we talked about how what Matthew's doing here is something that you often see in Greco-Roman biographies. He's not misdescribing it. He's not describing it wrongly. He's not, it's not an error. It's just um, biographers would often condense things hmm. uh, in the interest of space and time. Um, and so we talked about another example as well of like sometimes the words of one person will be transferred to another, like the story of the Roman centurion that asked Jesus to heal his servant. Um, in Luke, the, the centurion sends people to Jesus, asking him to heal the servant. And when Jesus is on the way, he sends more servants to, uh, to tell Jesus, hey, don't even, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed and Jesus heals him. Well, in Matthew, the, the, uh, the centurion goes directly to Jesus and he says the same thing. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, just heal my servant. Jesus does. But Matthew cuts out the middleman, right? He cuts mm-hmm. out the, uh, the Jewish elders and then the other servants that he sent to Jesus mm-hmm. just to condense the story. And he transfers the words uh, of these servants to the uh, centurion himself. Uh, which isn't inaccurate because the centurion was behind the whole thing anyway. He sent the the servants. So it's not that he's misrepresenting what happened, but he's not feeling the need to go through all the details. And this is so commonly done in Greco-Roman biographies, it was not considered inaccurate or an error. Though we might look at it and say, oh, this is not right. But not when you look at the genre and what was considered acceptable for that genre. Mm -hmm. I I think we've talked about the police officer friend that we've got that's now got into apologetics and you know he's applied some of those same principles that he learned as an officer to actually go back and examine the scriptures J Warner Wallace and yeah. and it's an interesting take on it you know but he was actually compelled by that cuz in their world they were saying that that if the stories align too perfectly it's usually real suspect because it seems like something's been coordinated. Right. But if you've got these different witnesses, and if you've got multiple from different angles, and there are overlaps, that it actually gives a little more robust testimony. Would you, would, yeah. would you agree with that oh, in yeah. general? Oh, yeah, it does add credibility. Yeah. It shows they weren't just trying to collude and write the exact same thing the exact same way. Yeah. Uh, these are independent sources that, that are aware of each other, but they're, they're, um, they're drawing on different... Uh, eyewitnesses and they're telling things from a different perspective with different angles and I think it, it does add credibility to to the accounts yeah that's interesting I think it's kind of fascinating because some stuff that uh, the core thing the core message core content if that were all over the place then we might right. have some different issues but right. some of the little nuances that change don't really affect yeah, you know, and it, it wasn't considered a, a distortion or a change, say, to airbrush out the uh, the middlemen that came came from the centurion to Jesus. That was in in that genre. This was widely done. Michael Icona has done a lot of great work on this. He's a good Bible scholar who has has looked into uh, some of these uh, biographers from the first and second century uh, who are writing these Greco-Roman biographies, like. Plutarch and Suetonius, even Lucian, who talked about how do you write history in, in the first and second century. And and you, he, he points out this was just done all the time. Mm. And so these are not considered errors, even though someone today says, well, clearly these two don't fit together. You know, either the, 
fig tree was cursed and it withered the next day or it withered immediately yeah. and they can't both be right. But when you understand what Matthew was doing and why he was doing it and how this is is commonly done, you you realize it's not it's not an error. He he certainly knew what he was doing and it was considered acceptable in that genre. Hmm. Incidentally, I think Plutarch and Suetorius were Klingons, right? That's, that sounds <laughs> yeah. like some sort of Star Trek <laughs> reference. Um, so uh, it's important to really define our terms, especially when we're talking about Bible reliability. So, uh, Trey, what do you think is a good definition of biblical inerrancy? Yeah, biblical inerrancy is a term you might hear every now and then and kind of what we're talking about you know, in this lesson but the definition we're going with is that inerrancy is that everything that the books of the Bible in the original manuscripts teach, um, so everything the original manuscripts teach or claim is true, and that the Bible is the only perfect rule for our faith in how to live. So uh, it's, it's essentially saying that as they were written, there is nothing uh, false about uh, the words that were written and that it's trustworthy and true. And it's the only thing, the only document, the only book uh, that is the perfect rule for our life, the perfect guide for how to live. And it's elevated above all other literature. That's helpful. Can you keep going on that? Maybe talk about why you think biblical inerrancy is important. And since it is important, should we think that the truth of the entire Christian faith depends on the Bible being inerrant? Yeah, inerrancy is very important because what kind of person wants to have a faith that their major source of that faith is full of errors and full <laughs> of contradictions and not trustworthy? Um, so it, it is incredibly important, um, but it's also uh, something that uh, while it's very important and something we should look into and, and be very assured that there aren't any errors— is Christianity false if you think you find an error? Which we're not saying there are mm, any, but mm. if someone, say, thinks they found an error or a contradiction, should they throw out their entire faith? And we would say wholeheartedly, no, do not do that. Um, because your faith doesn't depend on the inerrancy of the Bible. Like, if you believe God exists, that Jesus died and rose again, then you should be a Christian. You should follow this man, Jesus, and believe what he believed, and uh, follow what he commanded and uh, view scripture the way that he did. And so Jesus and the resurrection is the center of our faith, not that every little thing in the Bible uh, is perfect, even though we're saying we don't think there are any errors. But if someone does think there is one, they still shouldn't throw out their faith because of that. Hmm. That's fascinating because even back from last week or the week before, you know, in, in talking about some of the the errors where that the, the they came up in the copying of the manuscripts you know it was a very very small percentage and none of them affected doctrine or essentials of the faith was that correct yeah so that's good to point out that there's one source of error could be the copying errors that we don't even know what the original said and so we addressed that last week and then another source of error could be well we know what the original said we can reconstruct it that's not the question but the stuff that it said is just false and it claims things mm. that are wrong or that contradict so that was kind of the topic of this week is even if we know what the original said um, do what the original say have errors and we want to say no it, it doesn't but 
as Trey said, our whole faith doesn't hinge on that. It hinges on, hey, did Jesus rise? If he did, you, you should be a Christian. Well, and so you're kind of getting to it there, Zach. So why should we think that the Bible has no errors? Is it because the Bible you know, has proven that, that every claim is there? Talk about how we arrive at the conclusion that the Bible has no errors. Yeah, yeah. It would, it would be impossible to prove every claim the Bible makes. The Bible makes thousands of claims in yeah. the Old and New Testament, some of which are just, it's beyond us to be able to validate it. Right. Right. So there's no way. And some are yet to come. Yeah, which there's, is, yeah, exactly. There's no way we're ever going to prove inerrancy by going line by line through the Bible and proving every single thing that's in there. So inerrancy is more of a conclusion that we arrive at based on First of all, who God is. We, we know that God's teaching is always truthful, and we've got scriptures that talk about that, that God doesn't lie. He's always truthful, like Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, 18, uh, Titus 1, 2, uh, Romans 3, 4. Um, but we also know that the Bible is God's teaching. He inspired it. That's what we talked about the first uh, lesson of this series. And so, uh, as we saw in like uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen. So, if God is always truthful, and the Bible is God's teaching, then, you know, we'd expect that everything that the Bible actually teaches, that God's teaching us through his word, would be true. So that's how you arrive at it. Plus, you look at it and you see how remarkably consistent it is at being true. But you're never going to prove inerrancy by going through every line of the Bible and just checking everything and proving it. It's yeah. not possible. Yeah. So while there's plenty of evidence, I mean, this is still an exhibition of our faith. And that's... That's important yeah, to keep yeah. in mind. So, um, Trey, as we wrap up, how might this topic of inerrancy be relevant to witnessing to others? Uh, do you think we should focus on proving inerrancy when sharing our faith? Uh, no, I don't, um, because I think <laughs> we shouldn't, when we're sharing our faith and wanting others to start following Jesus, we should remove as many things as possible um, that may be in their way of following Jesus. We want to present them with the clear, simple gospel. And the gospel is this, that we are separated from God because of our sin, that Jesus actually came as a human and uh, died for our sins and rose again and now is reigning and ruling and is going to return one day. And that's what we want people to believe. And so you don't have to get someone to believe that every single claim the Bible makes is true. Because that's putting things that are unnecessary for salvation and giving them unnecessary hoops to jump through. And so while we believe the Bible is inerrant, I don't think that should be a leading uh, point in evangelism because uh, it's not necessary for salvation. And you want to focus on what's the most simple, clear presentation of the gospel. And that's Jesus, not that the Bible is this uh, amazing book completely uh, devoid of error, which we do believe it is. Uh, but you still want to focus on Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the gospel. Really well said, you guys. Thank you so much. I'm soaking this up and uh, hope you guys are too that are listening. If you need more information about Connection Point Church, you can always go to cp.news. It's a good starting place to get some information and some questions answered. And so hang in there. We'll be back with more of these resources before you know it. <laughs>